Friday, January twenty eighth, nineteen forty four. Dearest Kitty, in recent weeks I have developed a great liking for family trees and the genealogical tables of royal families. I have come to the conclusion that one should begin your search. You have to keep digging deeper and deeper into the past, which leads you to even more interesting discoveries. Although I am extremely diligent when it comes to my schoolwork and can pretty much follow the BBC Home Service on the radio, I still spend many of my Sundays sorting out and looking over my movie star collection, which has grown to a very respectable size. Mr. Kugler makes me happy every Monday by bringing me a copy of Cinema and Theatre magazine. The less worldly members of our household often refer to this small indulgence as a waste of money, yet they never fail to be surprised at how accurately I can list the actors in any given movie, even after a year. Beb, who often goes to the movies with her boyfriend on a day off, tells me on Saturday the name of the show they're going to see, and I then proceed to rattle off the names of the leading actors and actresses and the reviews. Mum's recently remarked. That I wouldn't need to go to the movies later on because I know all the plots, the names of the stars, and the reviews by heart. Whenever I come sailing in with a new hairstyle, I can read the disapproval on their faces, and I can be sure someone will ask which movie star I'm trying to imitate. My reply that it's my own invention is greeted with skepticism. As for the hairdo, it doesn't hold its set for more than half an hour. By that time, I'm so sick and tired with the remarks that I race to the bathroom and restore my hair to its normal mass of curls. Yours, Anne. Friday, January twenty-eighth, nineteen forty-four. Dearest Kitty, this morning I was wondering whether you ever felt like a cow, having to chew my stale news over and over again until you're so fed up with the monotonous fare that you yawn and secretly wish Anne would dig up something new. Sorry. I know you find it dull as ditch water, but imagine how sick and tired I am of hearing the same old stuff. If the talk at meal time isn't about politics or good food, then Mother or Mrs. Fandy trot out stories about their childhood that we've heard a thousand times before, or Dussel goes on and on about beautiful racehorses, his Charlotte's extensive wardrobe, leaky rowboats, boys who can swim at the age of four, aching muscles, and frightened patients. It all boils down to this: whenever one of the eight of us opens his mouth, the other seven can finish the story for him. We know the punchline of every joke before it gets told, so that whoever's telling it is left to laugh alone. The various milkmen, grocers, and butchers of the two former housewives have been praised to the skies or run into the ground so many times that in our imaginations they've grown as old as Methuselah. There's absolutely no chance of anything new or fresh being brought up for discussion in the annex. Still, all this might be bearable if only the grown-ups weren't in the habit of repeating the stories we hear from Mr. Clayman, Jan, or Meep, each time embellishing them with a few details of their own, so that I often have to pinch my arm under the table to keep myself from setting the enthusiastic storyteller on the right track. Little children, such as Anne, must never. Ever correct their elders, no matter how many blunders they make or how often they let their imaginations run away with them. Jan and Mr. Clayman love talking about people who have gone underground or into hiding. 
They know they're eager to hear about others in our situation, and that we truly sympathize with the sorrow of those who've been arrested, as well as the joy of prisoners who've been freed. Going underground or into hiding has become as routine as the proverbial pipe and slippers that used to await the men of the house after a long day at work. There are many resistance groups, such as Free Netherlands, that forge identity cards, provide financial support to those in hiding, organize hiding places, and find work for young Christians who go underground. It's amazing how much these generous and unselfish people do, risking their own lives to help and save others. The best example of this is our own helpers, who have managed to pull us through so far and will hopefully bring us safely to shore. Because otherwise, they'll find themselves sharing the fate of those they're trying to protect. Never have they uttered a single word about the burden we must be. Never have they complained that we're too much trouble. They come upstairs every day and talk to the men about business and politics, to the women about food and wartime difficulties, and to the children about books and newspapers. They put on their most cheerful expressions, bring flowers and gifts for birthdays and holidays, and are always ready to do what they can. That's something we should never forget. While others display their heroism in battle or against the Germans, our helpers prove theirs every day by their good spirits and affection. The most bizarre stories are making the rounds, yet most of them are really true. For instance, Mr. Clayman reported this week that a soccer match was held in the province of Gelderland. One team consisted entirely of men who had gone underground, and the other of eleven military policemen. In Hilversum, new registration cards were issued in order for the many people in hiding to get their rations. The registrar asked all those hiding in that district to pick up their cards at a specified hour, when the documents could be collected at a separate table. All the same, you have to be careful that stunts like these don't reach the ears of the Germans. Yours, Anne. Sunday, January thirtieth, nineteen forty-four. My dearest kid, another Sunday has rolled round. I don't mind them as much as I did in the beginning, but they're boring enough. I still haven't gone to the warehouse yet, but maybe sometime soon. Last night I went downstairs in the dark, all by myself, after having been there with father a few nights before. I stood at the top of the stairs while German planes flew back and forth, and I knew I was on my own, that I couldn't count on others for support. My fear vanished. I looked up at the sky and trusted in God. I have an intense need to be alone. Father has noticed I'm not my usual self, but I can't tell him what's bothering me. All I want to do is scream, "Let me be, leave me alone." Who knows? Perhaps the day will come when I'm left alone more than I'd like. And Frank. Thursday, February third, nineteen forty-four. Dearest Kitty, invasion fever is mounting daily throughout the country. If you were here, I'm sure you'd be as impressed as I am at the many preparations. Though you'd no doubt laugh at all the fuss we're making. Who knows? It may all be for nothing. The papers are full of invasion news and are driving everyone insane with such statements as. In the event of a British landing in Holland, the Germans will do what they can to defend the country, even flooding it if necessary. They've published maps of Holland with the potential flood areas marked. Since large portions of Amsterdam were shaded in, our first question was what we should do if the water in the streets rose to above our waists. This tricky question elicited a variety of responses. It will be impossible to walk or ride a bike. So we'll have to wade through the water. 
Don't be silly. We'll have to try and swim. We'll all put on our bathing suits and caps and swim underwater as much as we can, so nobody can see we're juice. Oh, baloney! I can just imagine the ladies swimming with the rats biting their legs. We won't even be able to leave the house. The warehouse is so unstable it will collapse if there's a flood. Listen, everyone. All joking aside, we really ought to try and get a boat. Why bother? I have a better idea. We can each take a packing crate from the attic and row with a wooden spoon. I'm going to walk on stilts. I used to be a whiz at it when I was young. Yan Gies won't need to. He'll let his wife ride piggyback, and then me will be on stilts. So now you have a rough idea of what's going on, don't you, Kit? This light-hearted banter is all very amusing, but reality will prove otherwise. The second question about the invasion was bound to arise: What should we do if the Germans evacuate Amsterdam, leave the city along with the others, disguise ourselves as well as we can? Whatever happens, don't go outside. The best thing to do is to stay put. The Germans are capable of herding the entire population of Holland into Germany, where they'll all die. Of course, we'll stay here. This is the safest place. We'll try to talk Clayman and his family into coming here to live with us. We'll somehow get hold of a bag of wood shavings so we can sleep on the floor. Let's ask Meep and Clayman to bring some blankets just in case, and we'll order some extra cereal grains to supplement the sixty-five pounds we already have. Jan can try to find some more beans. At the moment, we've got about sixty-five pounds of beans and ten pounds of split peas, and don't forget the fifty cans of vegetables. What about the rest, Mother? Give us the latest figures: ten cans of fish, forty cans of milk, twenty pounds of powdered milk, three bottles of oil, four crocks of butter, four jars of meat, two big jars of strawberries, two jars of raspberries, twenty jars of tomatoes, ten pounds of oatmeal, nine pounds of rice. That's it. Our provisions are holding up fairly well. All the same, we have to feed the office staff, which means dipping into our stock every week. So it's not as much as it seems. We have enough coal and firewood, candles too. Let's all make little money bags to hide in our clothes, so we can take our money with us if we need to leave here. We can make lists of what to take first in case we have to run for it, and pack our knapsacks in advance. When the time comes. We'll put two people on the lookout: one on the loft at the front of the house and one in the back. Hey, what's the use of so much food if there isn't any water, gas, or electricity? We'll have to cook on the wood stove, filter the water, and boil it. We should clean some big jugs and fill them with water. We can also store water in the three kettles we use for canning and in the wash tub. Besides, we still have about two hundred and thirty pounds of winter potatoes in the spice storeroom. All day long, that's all I hear: invasion, invasion, nothing but invasion. Arguments about going hungry, dying, bombs, fire extinguishers, sleeping bags, identity cards, poison gas, etc. Not exactly cheerful. A good example of the explicit warnings of the male contingent is the following conversation with Jan. Annex. We are afraid that when Germans retreat, they'll take the entire population with them. Jan. That's impossible. They haven't got enough trains. Annex trains. Do you really think they put civilians on trains? Absolutely not. Everyone will have to hoof it. Jan, I can't believe that. You're always looking on the dark side. What reason would they have to round up all the civilians and take them along? 
annex. Don't you remember Goebbels saying that if the Germans have to go, they'll slam the doors to all the occupied territories behind them? Yeah, they've said a lot of things. Annex. Do you think the Germans are too noble and humane to do it? Their reasoning is: if we go under, we'll drag everyone else down with us. Yan, you can say what you like. I just don't believe. Annex. It's always the same old story. No one wants to see the danger until it's staring them in the face. Yan, but you don't know anything for sure. You're just making an assumption. Annex. Because we've already been through it all ourselves. First in Germany and then here. What do you think is happening in Russia? Yan, you shouldn't include the Jews. I don't think anyone knows what's going on in Russia. The British and the Russians are probably exaggerating for propaganda purposes, just like the Germans. Annex. Absolutely not. The BBC has always told the truth, and even if the news is slightly exaggerated, the facts are bad enough as they are. You can't deny that millions of peace-loving citizens in Poland and Russia have been murdered or gassed. I'll spare you the rest of our conversations. I'm very calm and take no notice of all the fuss. I've reached a point where I hardly care whether I live or die. The world will keep on turning without me, and I can't do anything to change events anyway. I'll just let matters take their course and concentrate on studying, and hope that everything will be all right in the end. Yours, Anne. Tuesday, February eighth, nineteen forty-four. Dear Kitty, I can't tell you how I feel. One minute I'm longing for peace and quiet, and the next for a little fun. We've forgotten how to laugh. I mean, laughing so hard you can't stop. This morning I had the giggles. You know, the kind we used to have at school. Margaret and I were giggling like real teenagers. Last night there was another scene with Mother. Margaret was tucking her wool blanket round her when suddenly she leapt out of bed and carefully examined the blanket. What do you think she found? A pin. Mother had patched the blanket and forgotten to take it out. Father shook his head meaningfully and made a comment about how careless Mother is. Soon afterward, Mother came in from the bathroom and just to tease her, I said, "Oh, you are cruel." Of course, she asked me why I'd said that. And we told her about the pin she'd overlooked. She immediately assumed her haughtiest expression and said, "You're a fine one to talk when you're sewing. The entire floor is covered with pins. And look, you've left the manicure set lying around again. You never put that away either." I said I hadn't used it, and Margaret backed me up, since she was the guilty party. Mother went on talking about how messy I was until I got fed up and said rather curtly, "I wasn't even the one who said you were careless." I'm always getting blamed for other people's mistakes. Mother felt silent, and less than a minute later, I was obliged to kiss her good night. This incident may not have been very important, but these days everything gets on my nerves. And Mary Frank. Saturday, February twelfth, nineteen forty-four. Dearest Kitty, the sun is shining, the sky is deep blue, there's a magnificent breeze, and I'm longing, really longing, for everything: conversation, freedom, friends, being alone. I long to cry. I feel as if I were about to explode. I know crying would help, but I can't cry. I'm restless. I walk from one room to another, breathe through the crack in the window frame, feel my heart beating as if to say, "Fulfill my longing at last." I think spring is inside me. I feel spring awakening. I feel it in my entire body and soul. I have to force myself to act normally. I'm in a state of utter confusion. Don't know what to read, what to write, what to do. I only know what I'm longing for. Something. Yours and Monday, February fourteenth, nineteen forty-four. Dearest Kitty, 
A lot has changed for me since Saturday. What's happened is this: I was longing for something, but a small, a very small part of the problem has been resolved. On Sunday morning, I noticed, to my great joy, that Peter kept looking at me. Not in the usual way. I don't know. I can't explain it. But I suddenly had a feeling he wasn't as in love with Margaret as I used to think. All day long, I tried not to look at him too much because whenever I did, I caught him looking at me, and then, well, it made me feel wonderful inside. And that's not a feeling I should have too often. Sunday evening, everyone except Pin and Lee was clustered around the radio, listening to the immortal music of the German masters. Dussel kept twisting and turning the knobs, which annoyed Peter and the others too. After restraining himself for half an hour, Peter asked somewhat irritably if he would stop fiddling with the radio. Dussel replied in his haughtiest tone, "I'll decide that." Peter got angry and made an insolent remark. Mr. Van Dan sided with him, and Dussel had to back down. That was it. The reason for the disagreement wasn't particularly interesting in and of itself, but Peter has apparently taken the matter very much to heart, because this morning, when I was rummaging around in the crate of books in the attic, Peter came up and began telling me what had happened. I didn't know anything about it, but Peter soon realized he'd found an attentive listener and started warming up to his subject. Well, it's like this, he said. I don't usually talk much, since I know beforehand I'll just be tongue-tied. I start stuttering and blushing, and I twist my words around so much I finally have to stop because I can't find the right words. That's what happened yesterday. I meant to say something entirely different, but once I started, I got all mixed up. It's awful. I used to have a bad habit, and sometimes I wish I still did. Whenever I was mad at someone, I'd beat them up instead of arguing with them. I know this method won't get me anywhere, and that's why I admire you. You never at a loss for words. You say exactly what you want to say and aren't in the least bit shy. Oh, you're wrong about that. I replied. Most of what I say comes out very differently from the way I planned. Plus, I talk too much and too long, and that's just as bad. Maybe, but you have the advantage that no one can see you're embarrassed. You don't blush or go to pieces. I couldn't help being secretly amused at his words. However, since I wanted him to go on talking quietly about himself. I hid my laughter, sat down on a cushion on the floor, wrapped my arms around my knees, and gazed at him intently. I'm glad there's someone else in this house who flies into the same rages as I do. Peter seemed relieved that he could criticize Dussel without being afraid I'd tell. As for me, I was pleased too, because I sensed a strong feeling of fellowship, which I only remember having had with my girlfriends. Yours, M. Tuesday, February fifteenth, nineteen forty-four. The minor run-in with Duso had several repercussions, for which he had only himself to blame. Monday evening, Duso came in to see Mother and told her triumphantly that Peter had asked him that morning if he'd slept well, and then added how sorry he was about what had happened Sunday evening. He hadn't really meant what he said. Duso assured him he hadn't taken it to heart, so everything was right as rain again. Mother passed the story on to me. And I was secretly amazed that Peter, who'd been so angry at Dussel, had humbled himself despite all his assurances to the contrary. I couldn't refrain from sounding Peter out on the subject, and he instantly replied that Dussel had been lying. You should have seen Peter's face. I wish I'd had a camera. Indignation, rage, indecision, agitation, and much more crossed his face in rapid succession. That evening, Mr. Van Dan and Peter really told Dussel off. 
but it couldn't have been all that bad since Peter had another dental appointment today. Actually, they never wanted to speak to each other again. Genealogical. Genealogical. Adjective. Relating to the study or tracing of lines of family descent. Proverbial. Proverbial. Adjective. Of a word or phrase. Referred to in a proverb or idiom. Noun. Used to stand for a word or phrase that is normally part of a proverb or idiom, but is not actually uttered. Illicit. Illicit. Verb. Evoke or draw out a reaction, answer, or fact from someone.